So Ephesians 1, we're, we're picking it up here in verse 7. We left off last week in, um, in verse 6. And so what we're seeing here again, and, and the reason I said, you know, over the next few minutes, I, I hope that uh, if you're not feeling thankful, you're going to have plenty of reason to be thankful for today after this. Because we're looking at these blessings that we have. First of all, Paul highlights, remember again, verses 3 to verse 14 of Ephesians 1. Um, Paul is highlighting all these blessings we have from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and as he's talking about this and writing it out, he's just being so overwhelmed at the goodness of God that he writes these verses from verses 3 to verse 14 in the original Greek without any kind of punctuation. There's no periods. He's not stopping to put in a comma where he's supposed to. He's not following any kind of you know, grammarly protocol. Paul is just like so excited when he begins to look at the blessings from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that he can't even stop to, to write properly, right? I mean, he's just so overwhelmed at the goodness of God. And so these are the things that we're looking at here in Ephesians 1, um, in verses 3 to verse 14. We're picking up in verse 7 because we saw last week the blessings from God the Father. Well, today we pick it up looking at the blessings from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so read with me. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 3 just to give us again a background from what we've already looked at and uh, these blessings from God and then move into verse 7. It says there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation uh, of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, verse seven, in him we have redemption the, uh, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So Lord, we pray here today that you would take this word now and just cause our hearts to be just filled with thankfulness, gratitude, as we look at the incredible blessings that you've already bestowed upon us. So give us just um, eyes to see, ears to hear what your spirit would say to us through this word now today. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So keep in mind here now as we look at, again, the whole Trinity coming into view here in these verses, right? Uh, as we see the, the blessings that are just being poured out from the Godhead completely working in unity here. Blessings from God the Father as we looked at uh, blessings um, of election, you know, from the past, right? Blessings from God uh, the Son as we're going to see the blessings we have through adoption presently. And the blessings from the Holy Spirit where we see these future blessings of unification and so Paul is laying all this out for us here just to cause us to see what we have already today. And notice that all these blessings are in him. It says, we're gonna see that phrase repeated oftentimes, in him, these all come through Jesus Christ. This isn't God looking down and saying, oh, look at you people. You're just so wonderful. You're just so deserving of blessing. 
I just want to bless. I mean, as much as God loves us, the fact is that these blessings come in and through Jesus Christ, that they are in him. That's the, the, the basis point, the starting point, the beginning point, the end point, and every point in between. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for you. And this is what we're looking at here today, that these blessings come because of Jesus, that they're all in him. That's what it says in verse seven here, in him, right? In Jesus we have redemption. Now that word redemption, fabulous word, my friends, great word. It's not a word that we're oftentimes using today, but in this day, it was a word that packed a punch and it, it was a word that was very applicable because as Paul is writing during this time of the Roman Empire, understand that there were slaves that were abounding, millions of people sold into slavery or, or, or given themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. It was something that was just a, a, a common thing happening within the Roman Empire. So this was something, this idea of redemption was a very familiar subject to bring up, but Paul is looking to tie this into the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, there's three main Greek words that are used in the New Testament to reference redemption. They all have a little bit of a different kind of implication or meaning to it. One word that we see in the New Testament is this Greek word, agorazo, and it means to buy at the marketplace. And so the thought here is of someone in the marketplace going and buying their groceries, putting their money down, paying the price, and so now that product that you just purchased is now yours, right? You come and you take that, you take it home with you, you've bought it, you've taken it out of the marketplace, it's yours now. That's the Greek word, agorazo. And it's the word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, when he says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You've been purchased, you're his. That's the Greek word, agorazo. But then we see another word used in, in scripture, and it's the Greek word, exagorazo, and it means to buy out of the market. It means to take goods out of the marketplace and never to sell them again. So they've been kind of set free. They've been taken out. They're yours, but you're never gonna sell them again, right? They're, they're kind of experiencing that sort of new freedom in a sense. And it's the word that's used in Galatians chapter three, verse 13, when Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So in other words, that, that curse is something that we never have to go back into again. We'll never be sold out in that again. We've been set free from that. But now Paul uses a different Greek word in this chapter, of Ephesians here in verse seven. And he uses this Greek word, apolutrosis, and it means to liberate by the paying of a ransom in order to set a person free. And what a great word that is for us. You, you see, there's a lot of kind of tie-in to these three different words that we've looked at here this morning. There's similarities to them, but they each are, are differentiated by a little part of an aspect. One is to be brought out of the marketplace, wants to be brought out of the marketplace, never to be sold again. One is to be brought out of the marketplace, but for the purpose of setting it free now. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He's paid the price to redeem us, but the purpose of that is so that we could be set free. Set free, no longer to be in bondage 
ever again. This is the heart that Jesus has for you, that he has for me. It's the whole story and theme of the Bible. It's this theme of redemption. And it's something that God always wants us to come back to, to recognize what Jesus has done for us so that we could live these lives for him. He's redeemed us. All through the Old Testament, all throughout scripture, you see God bringing up reminder and remembrance to the fact that I've delivered you out of Egypt to those that were Israelites. Uh, A reminder constantly, all throughout scripture, you see this phrase be brought up, I'm the God that has brought you out of Egypt. It's the starting point, the basis for everything that we do now in him and for him. And same with the New Testament now. It's all coming back to Jesus and what he's done for us in redeeming us to set us free now to live for him. And not just to live for him, but to enjoy these lives in him because now we're no longer enslaved to sin that's holding us back, that's keeping us down. We've been set free never to go back into bondage again. You see, set free by Jesus. God wants his people to know that that's the basis, the the starting point for life in him and, and the foundation we have to continue to live in him and for him is because We've been redeemed, we're a redeemed people. Jesus said in John 8, verse 36, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus, you see, has paid the price for your freedom, for my freedom. And this price that he paid for your redemption has come at quite a price. Notice what we read there in verse seven. In him we have redemption, how? Through his blood. It's through his blood. Now, I want you to think about this concept of the blood of Jesus. Sometimes we look at the blood of Jesus as some kind of like mystical, magical sort of a thing, like, oh, the blood of Jesus. I mean, I grew up in church singing songs like, there is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the Great song, right? But I'm like, as a kid going, what is this power in the blood? I mean, and then we hear people, you know, I just plead the blood of Jesus upon that, you know, and I cover that with the blood. I'm like, why? We, because in our, in our thinking today, I mean, blood is like not something we want to be talking about. Blood's a good, but we want to keep it invisible inside where it's supposed to be. I don't want to see blood. I don't like to talk about blood, right? And so we get this idea, like, why are we talking about the blood of Jesus? Is there some kind of calling out the blood? Is there some kind of magical thing that it does? Understand this. This is the This is a point of when we reference the blood of Jesus is it simply is the, if factoring in that Jesus died on a cross for you and blood was shed, the very means that it took for us to be forgiven. It's not that his blood was any any different than our blood, but he was a perfect sinless sacrifice. Because the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. And so in other words, for our sin to be covered, to be forgiven, there needed to be a a sacrifice. Now, it should have been our death. That should have been the result of our sin. The price for that was us dying. But Jesus came in and he died the death in our place. And blood was shed to show that that sacrifice was full and complete. This wasn't Jesus just kind of like faking it. Ah, I didn't really die. I was just taking a nap on the cross. No, his blood was shed. His life was given up 
so that you could be redeemed and forgiven because that was the price for sin was death. So we're, we're cleansed, we're forgiven through the blood of Jesus, who Jesus came as fully God yet fully man, sinless, and was the only complete sacrifice for us. Oh my goodness, I need a coffee? Well, thank you. All right, it's Tim. No, never. I'll take coffee anytime. Thank you. That's great. I mean, a pumpkin spice maybe would have been... No, I'm just kidding. This is great. <laughs> he did. Actually, you brought me a pumpkin spice this week too. My goodness. Thank you, Brent. You're on fire this week. Right on. Okay. Let me have a sip now. Mm. That's great. Okay. Thank you so much. That did throw me off a little bit, but um, that's good. So... The idea, again, just of the blood of Jesus, is that it, it covers our sin. It pays the penalty for our sin. Jesus came and did that. Our, our redemption, you see, came at a great cost. And I, and I want you to, to understand that when we talk about the blood of Jesus, that our, our redemption came at a heavy cost. Sometimes we can easily, I think, succumb to holding a low view of sin, or tolerate sin as though, ah, it's no big deal, right? I mean, God understands that we're weak, we're human, right? We get a pass, don't we, on that? No big deal. But when you begin to think that your sin costed God our Father to give up his son, to come to this world, and to die on a cross, to, to suffer, to suffer immensely, to show the brutality the pain that followed a sin. Jesus took that for you and for me. It causes me to go, man, I don't want to tolerate sin. I don't want to flirt around with sin. I don't want to have a low view of sin because it costed my Savior much. It cost him giving up his life and God allowing his son to come and be crucified in that way. Your deliverance, your redemption, your forgiveness came at a great cost. Look at what, what Paul, or sorry, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So because Jesus shed his blood for us, He's fulfilled the payment needed for us to be forgiven of sin and to be reconciled to the Father now. Forgiveness could only come through sacrifice. That was the means that God has set out all along. It, it tells us in Hebrews 9, verse 22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no taking away of sin. There's no forgiveness without blood because sacrifice was required. So God now, because of the blood of Jesus, God can now forgive us of all of our wrongdoing, all of our sin, because Jesus has given himself so completely, which was the very means for us to be forgiven. Aren't you thankful for that today? I mean, we could end right now, guys, and be like, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm ready to go and enjoy Thanksgiving in a whole new way now because of what Jesus has done for us. Redemption, forgiveness of sin through his blood. Now, sometimes we don't always feel forgiven, right? Let's be honest. Sometimes we struggle with the fact like, I mean, yeah, God can 
forgive some things, but man, there's been some things in my past that can God really forgive that? Does God really do that? And we can wrestle over this idea of feeling worthy of being forgiven, but notice what it says there in verse seven, that, that the forgiveness of sins is according to the riches of his grace. I mean, that's just a rich statement right there. In other words, your forgiveness is not based upon your performance or what you bring to the table. It's not about how you do as a Christian in no longer sinning. Your sins are forgiven according to his grace. And grace is simply that unmerited favor of God. It's undeserving. That's what grace is all about. And it's gotta be by his grace because we can't do the work to bring forgiveness or to earn forgiveness. Stop trying. I mean, yeah, you sit there and you can wrestle and go, I don't feel deserving. And just say, yeah, I'm not deserving. That's truth right there. None of us deserve to be forgiven of our sin. Accept it. But there's an answer for it. It's by his grace. It's undeserving. That's why Jesus has done it. That's why verse seven starts with in him. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. And notice it doesn't say this is out of his grace. It says it's what? According to his grace. Picture it this way. If Jeff Bezos, Amazon man, goes into a restaurant, right? And he leaves a tip for dinner. And he leaves a $5 tip. He's gonna be leaving a tip out of his riches. But if he were to leave a tip according to to his riches, well, that server would most likely be able to retire, wouldn't he? That's the difference. This grace comes to you, or forgiveness of sins, it comes to you according to his grace, to the riches of his grace, which is immeasurable. It has no end. It just continues to flow out. There's no exhausting it. You don't reach a point where God says, oh, sorry, you went one too many sins there. No more grace for you, right? That's not God. It keeps coming according to his grace, to the riches of his grace. And I love that acronym that's often been used for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. My friends, you are accepted in the beloved as we read there at the end of verse six, accepted in the beloved. It's all according to what Christ has done for you and given to you. This kind of grace and love seems almost too good to be true, doesn't it? But look at what we read there in verse eight, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God is, is wise in, in doing this. We look at that and we go, how can that ever be? But it's in accordance to his wisdom and prudence. God has a glorious plan that, that unfolds, that brings him great glory. In doing this here now, in showing grace to us, it's all ultimately to show the wonders and the glories of God, right? That's the thing. And, and, and Paul points out, he begins to unfold his plan for us as we continue on here in verse nine. Look at what we read there in verse nine. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. There's that phrase, in him again. It's all about the work of Jesus, my friends. Amen. Keep resting in that. Keep resting in him. But see, 
the book of Ephesians is greatly concerned with this kind of mystery that Paul brings up here in verse, in verse nine. That this plan that he's made abound toward us in wisdom and prudence, it's according to the mystery, uh, having made known to us the mystery of his will. It's unfolded in this here. Now, when we get to chapter three, sometime probably in, in 2021, um, when we get to chapter three, we're gonna talk about that mystery a little bit more. It, we're gonna expound that more because the, the book of Ephesians is greatly concerned with revealing what this mystery that God has been kind of up to and to see this unfold. Now, let me just put it this way here too because when we hear about the mystery, we look at that and we go, oh, well, that's something that I need to try to figure out. I need to try to solve. What is this mystery here? Like a classic, you know, whodunit novel, right? You're trying to figure out, Who's the culprit here? This mystery that the Bible brings up is not something for us now that we need to try to figure out and solve like God's keeping things from us that he just says, well, you gotta dig in a little bit deeper here and figure it out. No, this mystery when it is brought up in the New Testament like this, it's something that was once concealed but is now revealed to us. In other words, it's, it's demonstrating this work that God has been doing that at one point was a little bit, what are you up to, God but now has been revealed to us and shown more clearly to us. The word mystery, as Paul used it, describes something once unknown in the Old Testament, but has now been made known. Case in point, throughout the Old Testament, right? They, they, the people were required to come and bring animal sacrifices to the tabernacle or to the temple to atone, to cover for their sin. And they're bringing all these animal sacrifices, lots of blood being shed as again, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so all these things, but little did they know that all of these sacrifices were gonna be fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus Christ who was gonna be sent to this world, who was gonna be born into humanity, grow up and eventually give his life on a cross. And in so doing, he shed his own blood and in so doing, fulfill all these sacrifices. He was, as John the Baptist would point out, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus. Jesus would be the one. That was a mystery in the Old Testament. They'd be like, how is this? Do we just keep doing this for life? Animal sacrifices? They had no idea what was gonna come. And this mystery is something that God doesn't desire to keep from us. He desires to make it known to us now according to his good pleasure, it says. Now, verse 10 reveals the specific mystery that Paul points out. It's to bring all things together as one in Christ. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. See, again, what happens in the New Testament? We see suddenly Jews and Gentiles coming together as one in Christ, forming the church, Old Testament times, if you were to say, hey, guess what God's gonna do? He's gonna make a new body, a new people. They'd be like, what are you talking about? There's no way that Jews could associate with Gentiles. In the Old Testament, that was unheard of. In fact, in Jesus' day, how did the Jews treat the Gentiles then? Not very well. It took a lot for them to see that God was bringing them together, not replacing, not the church replacing Israel, and that's not what we're talking about here, but becoming one in Christ. That was a strange thing for them to observe and to see. Now, we're seeing those things in part today, all people coming together in one in Christ, but Paul is looking ahead even more so to a future day 
when this work is going to be seen even more so. I believe Paul is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Now, Paul uses an interesting word in verse 10. He uses this word dispensation, right? Dispensation, that's a word that, uh, again, has created kind of debates. Is, is God, you know, operate in different dispensations? You got people that will say, well, I'm a non-dispensationalist. Others will say, oh, I'm very dispensational, you know? What does this mean exactly? Well, that word dispensation simply means a stewardship or an administration. The word can more literally be defined as the management of a household. The management of a household. I think we've seen that happen throughout history where we've seen God manage the affairs of men differently and operate in ways that change from how he once did during the days of Adam. And Eve, he puts them in a garden, right? And he fellowships with them as he walks with man along the garden in the cool of the day, right? I mean, there's God just fellowshipping with Adam and Eve. Hey, Adam, what's going on? What's happening? Very different than what we see today. And then you come to Moses and you've got, you know, the Levitical law being instituted and, and the tabernacle worship. God, you know, operated now with man in a, in a different way during that time. I'm thankful that we don't have that going on today now. God operates differently now today. And then we're living right now in the age of grace or the church age. We're no longer under the law. I'm thankful for that, right? No longer having to bring sacrifices because Jesus is the final and complete sacrifice. So we know that coming up, we're gonna see after the rapture of the church, tribulation period, where God's gonna be acting or or you know, interacting with man differently than a different dispensation. And that's gonna move in afterwards to the second coming and the millennial kingdom. I believe that's what Paul ultimately has in mind as he reveals this mystery here in verse 10. All things at the time of Christ's return are gonna be gathered under his rule and reign. Now, this is not saying that everybody's gonna be saved in that day, as some people like to think, and it's, it's the you know, doctrine of universalism, which is a, a heretical view. It doesn't imply that everybody's just gonna come and now be under Christ. No, there's still decisions to be made here. William MacDonald said, those who will not be reconciled in the day of his grace will be subjugated in the day of judgment. Today's a day of salvation. Today's a day to align yourself with Jesus to come under the reign and rule of Jesus. But in that day, you see, when Christ reigns, all things are gonna be brought under his dominion, his control, and his rule. And that's what I believe Paul is speaking of here. God's moving everything forward to that moment of time. That's the fullness of times that Paul was speaking of there in verse 10. And then it says in verse 11, in him also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So Paul speaks now of this glorious inheritance that believers now receive in Christ. I mean, just imagine what that's gonna be like when we are with Jesus, when we go to heaven, and, and that inheritance, the, the heavenly glory. I, I can't even fathom what that's gonna be like. But here's the thing. We oftentimes get really focused in on thinking about, oh, what heaven, what's heaven gonna be like? 
how big is my mansion going to be? Am I going to be on a golf course or not? You know, like we think about all these, these things that we might inherit, how great that is. But can I just say that I think the greatest inheritance we're going to have is simply being with Jesus. Amen. I think that's going to pale everything else. Everything else that we might think we're going to have in heaven is going to pale in comparison next to simply being with Jesus. That's going to be, I believe, just the object of our devotion, worship, and, and, and passion there in heaven. It's just seeing Jesus face to face. How good is that going to be? That's going to be our inheritance. That's what we should be looking for, forward to here. See, when I got engaged to my wife, um, she was driving at the time like a really nice car, way above anything else of our peer groups, right? Everybody's like, oh, Michelle, how'd you end up with a car? That's pretty nice, right? I mean, there's nothing fancy in today's standards, but it was way above the junkers and the beaters that the rest of us were driving, right? But you see, here's the thing. I didn't marry Michelle for her car. I mean, not at first. It, it did, no. It, I had to work through that, but I did not. <laughs> I didn't marry Michelle for her car. I married Michelle because I wanted to be with her. I wanted to, to enjoy and live life together with her. That was what I was looking forward to. In fact, the car didn't even make it to the marriage. I, I think we learned a valuable lesson about making sure that oil is always in the car, right? Bad, bad scene there, which is also a picture of the oil of the Holy Spirit. Well, we don't have time to get into that right now. We'll leave that for another day. But um, so that's the thing is that just what we should be looking forward to the most is just being able to spend eternity with Jesus and, and live in, in face-to-face relationship with him. I can't, I can't imagine what that's gonna be like. That's what we should be looking forward to. And it's been predestined that believers also are like an inheritance to Christ. Do you understand that, that, that God loves us, that Jesus loves us and, and has desired to bring us in as the bride of Christ? And we become like an inheritance to him? That, that, that amazes me. That means that Jesus, again, loves to be with us and spend time with us and just reveal his goodness and his glory to us. That's exciting. I mean, we're not just kind of tagging along, right? Like, you know, Jesus is like, guys, can you just give me a bit of space here, right? I mean, no, he longs to be with us. We become like his inheritance. Oh, so good. Listen, verse 13 and 14, let's... let's um, cover this here too, as we move into looking at the blessings from God the Holy Spirit now. It says in verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, Ephesus, this city, this church that Paul is is designating this letter to. Um, Ephesus was a seaport city, all right? And so there's a lot of trading and buying that was going on as goods were getting brought in and then goods going out, right? It's kind of like the modern Amazon of the day, right? And so what people would do is to, in order to, to mark their goods, they would seal these items, these containers that were going so that when they were getting shipped over, it, the, the rightful owner would be able to recognize, oh, this is mine, it's sealed. Or when things are coming in, people will be able to go, oh, this is mine. I've got this seal to show that this is mine. And so what does God say now? God says, I've sealed you. 
in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now those, those words, I mean, they just, they just pack a punch here. Because what's being implied here is that God is saying, listen, you're mine. When you come to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, suddenly now you enter into a new relationship. The Bible says that you become born again. You're a child of God the moment that you accept Jesus. There's not something, a, a list of requirements to fulfill or to do. There's not hoops to jump through. God says the moment that you accept Jesus, boom, you're sealed. I see you now as mine. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in you. When does the Holy Spirit come into you? At the moment of salvation, says. The moment that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and having believed, suddenly you're sealed. God's not sitting there saying, oh, I just want to just make sure. I'm going to give it a bit of time here to make sure you're somebody I want to put my seal upon. Right? I mean, I want to make sure you mean business. God doesn't do that. It's the moment that you believe in Jesus. You're sealed. You're his. He's got you marked as his. He's the rightful owner. That's what God's done through the Holy Spirit. And then notice he goes on to add another truth to, to this. Here in verse 14 says, who is, the Holy Spirit speaking of, is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the guarantee. So not only have we been sealed, but he's guaranteed that he will deliver to us our future hope and future home. This word guarantee is in the Greek means money, which in purchases is given as a pledge or down payment that the full amount will subsequently be paid. Listen, if there's something you're looking to get today and you want to secure that, what are you going to do? You put a down payment down. You do that with a house, right? This is a term that's used in the King James. It's it, the, the term they use in the King James translation is earnest. Sometimes we use that term even today in real estate. It's that earnest payment. It's the down payment to say, I want this house and I'm putting my money down to say, I'm coming back to pay for the rest of it. I'm coming back to claim this more fully as my own. That's what God has done through the Holy Spirit. He's put his down payment on to say, listen guys, I'm not done with you yet. There's more to come, better things to come. And I've put my seal upon you. I put my spirit in you as a down payment that I'm going to come again and bring you to myself. The down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until that redemption is seen in full when Jesus comes back again and brings us to him. This is the work that God has done through his Holy Spirit. This is the blessing that you have. Understand that sometimes we, we walk around and we feel like, am I saved? Am I, I mean, or, or have I lost my salvation? Listen, if you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you put your trust in him to forgive you your sin, you're saved, you're sealed. Signed, sealed, and delivered here, my friends, is the answer for us. We don't have to doubt, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to question because God already tells us, I've sealed you. I put my down payment upon you. You're mine. And nothing can take that away. Nothing can claim possession of you because I've got my seal upon you. And he's gonna come and finish the work. William Barclay says, the highest experiences of Christian peace and joy, which this world can afford are only faint foretaste of the joy into which we will one day enter it is as if God had given us enough to whet our appetites for more and enough to make us certain that someday he will give us all. 
And why has all this been done? So that we will praise and glorify him. Every, every uh, the end of each of these sections, as we look at blessings from God the Father, blessings from God the Son, blessings from God the Holy Spirit, all end each of those three times we see it's all to the praise and the glory of God here. And that's a beautiful phrase. John, John Stott said this. This phrase needs to be unpacked. Because the glory of God is the revelation of God and the glory of his grace is his self-disclosure as a gracious God. To live to the praise of the glory of his grace is both to worship him ourselves by our words and deeds as the gracious God he is and to cause others to see and to praise him too. This is God's will for Israel in Old Testament days and it is also his purpose for his people today. Understand, and I think we mentioned this last week, but understand, God doesn't exist for us as though he's just that kind of genie that we call upon when we need help. We exist for God and God has created us to fulfill his purposes and his purposes is to magnify his name for the revelation of God to go out into all the world. That's why he chose Israel was to magnify him, to make him known. That's why he chooses us, the church here now, to glorify him, to make him known so that the revelation of God goes out so that others will see and know that he is truly the one true God so that they can come into the life that he has for them. So we have been given all these incredible blessings so that we might more rightly give praise and glory to God so that we might live with this great joy and peace and blessings of knowing all these things that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We've been adopted in as sons. We've been redeemed. We've been accepted in the beloved. We have forgiveness of sin. Are we living these things out? Are we, are we manifesting these in a way that we live to where others go? Man, how can you have such joy in the midst of all that we go through today? How can you have such peace with all the trials and circumstances we face? It's because of the way that I've been blessed in and through God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all that he's done for me. And it's why I can continue on to just lift up my voice and praise him and live for him and all these things. People, when they see that, are gonna go, man, that's a God that changes things. That's a God that makes a difference in life. Maybe I need that. And that's why you're living. It's to reveal that, show that, be a witness of that. And it's all to the praise of God and all to his glory. Well, let's do that here today. Let's respond here this morning. Worship team, come up and, and let's just take some time to respond in praise and thankfulness here to all that the Lord has done. The blessings from God the Father, elect chosen in him. Blessings from God the Son, redeemed, adopted. Blessings from God the Holy Spirit, signed or sealed and, and, and delivered or, or signed and sealed and delivered is what I'm trying to say given that ceiling and down payment that there's more to come and he's gonna bring us through. He's gonna receive us to himself. Let's be thankful here today. Let's rejoice and let's stand together and let's worship him. Lord, we thank you for this word and for the truth that we see here. And Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be flooded with joy and excitement and, <clears throat> and thanks for what you've done for us, Lord. It's all because of you. And so we rest in that. And Lord, help us to live now to the praise of your glory. Amen.